Romans as a church, and a part of our worship, of course, uh, involves hearing God speak. The amazing thing, his word is his very word. Uh, and when we read it, and when we hear it proclaimed and taught, we're encountering God. Uh, and, and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit helps us to grasp and to understand and to apply his word. So it's a special privilege to be before his word each Sunday. So we are in Romans chapter 13. We'll be in verses 8 through 10 today as we make our way through this book. Um, this morning I want to talk to you about debt. Um, debt is a real issue for Americans, by the way. Uh, Dave Ramsey, the financial consultant, reports that two-thirds of Americans have consumer debt, and the average debt load is 30, over $34,000. Um, that's consumer debt, that, debt that doesn't carry any equity with it, really. Um, and it's uh, true across the board. Uh, the highest uh, income category is between 75 and 100,000. Basically, they have the highest amount of consumer debt. It's true across different generations. Baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials carry about the same debt load. Um, Generation Z Zoomers will see as, as they grow up. Many people worry daily about their debt. And many think that they will never be out of debt until the day they die. This is a reality uh, for us uh, as Americans. And before I get into the passage today, um, I just want to let you know that, um, that we want to help you with that. It's a reality for a lot of us. And we've actually done classes on using biblical principles to help uh, get out of debt. So if you're in that place and, and you're worried about your debt, we want to help you. And we have people in the church who are skilled in, in how to deal with debt and how to get out of it. Uh, it can be done. And God wants you to experience a degree of freedom there, not to live under a burden of unpaid debt. Um, and he grants us grace and wisdom. So we want to help you with that. Um, and however we can, please talk to us. But there is one debt that will never be paid in full. And it isn't a bad thing, actually. Um, it's a good thing. And that's what this passage today talks about, this never-ending debt that God um, calls us to. So let's take a look at God's word, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We're going to dig into this passage today. We're going to talk about the debt of love, this never-ending debt that, it, that comes from God and is connected actually to the very heart of God and, the, and really the essence of what it means to be made in His image. Um, so we'll dig in. But let's pray and ask for God's help to hear His Word, to understand it. Uh, that I can teach it well, and that we would apply it. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here today. Um, Lord, you love each and everyone here, and you want to teach us about yourself and your ways. And so I ask you, Lord, as I teach and proclaim your word, as we listen, Holy Spirit, come and dwell with us. We want to encounter you. We want to see you in your goodness and glory. We want to understand your ways and walk in them. And we want you to be glorified because you're worthy. So we thank you, Lord, that we get to do this before you. So help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
So I want to just walk through this passage. First, I want to talk about the debt of love right in the beginning. Verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Um, it's probably important to remind you of the context here um, that we've been going through Romans and we've been learning about the good news of the gospel uh, and the way that Lo Romans is laid out. And actually in the men's Bible study, we're going through it as well at a much slower pace. Um, we're at, at our rate, I actually, I calculated it's going to take us, I think, was it 17 years to get through all of Romans? Um, so we're going a little more slowly in the men's group. And it's really good, by the way. You're probably like, oh, that's one group I want to stay away from. But actually, it's been really rich just to slow down. But anyhow, as we've gone through it, you see the, the truth that Paul is laying out in this letter. And he starts in the first three chapters laying out the human predicament, the reality that there's no one righteous, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That we are in our unrighteousness, actually, opposed to God and his ways and active in that. Uh, this sad reality is laid out in those first three chapters and in a way that's really hard for us to read and think about. We don't like to hear that, but of course we need to hear a correct diagnosis if we're going to get a cure. And that's what Paul does in those first three chapters. And then in chapters three through five, he talks about the wonderful cure. How do we deal with this reality of our unrighteousness before God uh, and before one another? And chapters 3 through 5 teach us that Christ himself is the answer, the only answer. He is the perfectly righteous one who fulfilled all righteousness, offered up his life as a sacrifice to pay for our unrighteousness before a holy God. And in that sacrifice, as we put our trust in him, not ourselves, we are forgiven. And we are actually counted righteous in Christ. And we are given new life in Christ. And he changes everything. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. And so Paul's laid that out in chapters 3 through 5. And then he speaks in the following chapters of the struggles we have, the, the reality of this, how it works in our lives. And in chapter 8, he talks about this new life now in Christ. That we have this new life in, the, in forgiveness and in belonging to the Lord and being one with Christ and in experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit now grants this new life where we are now able to begin to love like Jesus loves and to fulfill the law even and walk in ways of righteousness. And so he goes through that, has a chapters 9 through 11, uh, addresses the issue of what about Israel and, and so forth. And then chapters 12 through 16, where we are now, he talks about this transformed life. In light of this good news, in light of the, the bad news of our unrighteousness, but the good news of Christ and this new life that we have, how do we live? And that's what we've been looking at in these chapters. And so this follows in the flow of that. And we've spent time looking at all the different applications of this new life. Loving one another in the church. Loving one another in specific ways. Loving our enemies. And loving God. And loving those in authority. Last week in chapter 13. By the way, um, last week I think was a hard message to hear. Uh, because we struggle with this idea of, of submitting to the government. And it was um, an interesting experience for me as a pastor. It seemed like no one wanted to make eye contact with me after that message. Uh, I was there greeting people, and it, no one did this, but it was almost like, yep, see you next week, walking out the door. Um, and I know that's how the word works, right? The reality of the word, it, it uh, interrogates us, and we're found wanting. But there's the good news of the gospel that transforms how we view all this. And so we'll do this again this week as we look at the word and as we face fresh challenges in God's word. So back to what Paul's saying. 
He's, he calls us to owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, important to maybe talk about that first part because it says owe no one anything, and you might think it's saying never be in debt at all. But uh, there's a number of ways we can answer that. First, just right in the passage, Paul has just finished in, in the previous section, right, saying that you owe honor, you owe taxes and revenue and honor and respect to governing authorities. Um, so it's not that you shouldn't owe anything, it's that you shouldn't let anything you owe remain outstanding, unpaid. And that's why the NIV translates it that way. It says, let no debt remain outstanding. So, so it's it's owed no one anything that they ought to have and you have in your power to give. So you pay your debts. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, you can look elsewhere in scripture that addresses this issue of, of debt. And just a side point because it, the question gets raised as we look at this. Uh, debt in borrowing and lending aren't forbidden in scripture. They're even expected. Uh, there's a biblical way to do it, of course. So Exodus 22 25, it says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them. And you shall not exact interest from them. Deuteronomy 15, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And Matthew 5, 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So we know in these passages that there is this idea of, of loaning and borrowing and, and owing and so forth. So, so uh, it isn't forbidden. There's more that the Bible says on debt, and that's a whole other message. Again, if you're wrestling with debt, we'd love to help you and help you understand these truths and walk them out. This context really is about relational debt. Um, and we're not to allow any relational debt to remain outstanding. That's what he's been talking about in verse 13. But there is one relational debt that is always outstanding. The debt to love each other. Paul says, oh, no one did anything except to love each other. There is a never-ending debt that we all carry to love each other. And it's something we ought to gladly do. And we can't do it in and of ourselves. This is a command from Scripture Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Except the debt to love each other. It's a command in Scripture. It's a good thing. And it can only be done in the power of the Lord. This is a truth. It's a command of Scripture that should drive us to the Lord. And we have strength in the Lord. We have the ability by His grace to do this. This is why for, for Peg and me, my, my wife and I, we have on our wedding rings inscribed 1 John 4.19. And that verse says, we love because he first loved us. We put it on our rings because we know that the vows of marriage are very sober vows. We're called to lay our lives down, to love each other with, with our whole lives. It's an impossible thing to do if not depending on God alone. We need his love. And it's because he first loved us that we can therefore love each other. This never-ending debt can never be paid by you. You don't have the resources to keep on paying this debt in and of yourselves. This command must be upheld. It must have its full weight on our lives. It says this is a never-ending debt. 
But it would be wrong of us to think that the command means we in and of ourselves somehow fulfill it. The commands of God, the law of God are, is always meant to drive us back to God. To drive us to his grace. To recognize it's in him alone that we can find the ability to deal with the reality of the commands. Both our falling short but also the power to fulfill these commands. One of the things that Peg and I like to do in the summer um, is go on different hikes. We go up to the White Mountains. And uh, we've been doing this for years and we're still discovering new places. And there's so much beauty in God's creation. Um, and one of uh, the things we like to do is to see waterfalls. Uh, and I yeah, got a picture up there. This is one of the places that we've hiked to uh, in Crawford Notch State Park along Gribbs, Gibbs Brook on Crawford Path. So if you ever have a chance to hike that one, it's a good one. You don't have to go all the way up to the top of Washington. You can just go up uh, like a mile or two and see a lot of beautiful waterfalls. And so this is a particular waterfall that I think illustrates something about this reality. It's a picture of how this never-ending debt gets paid. You and I are like uh, the steps in that cascade. If you can keep that picture up, please. Um, like the steps in that cascade. Uh, and God is the source, the water. He, he provides his love for us. And each of us are like a step in that cascade. We're receiving God's love as it flows down into our lives. And it's to flow in our lives and out of our lives to others. It's only by being in the stream that you can do it, right? But nevertheless, you are called to be a, a channel of his love to keep on paying this never-ending debt of love to one another because he is pouring into your life his infinite and perfect love. And so we are called to this. And by the way, for many of us this week serving in VBS, you are going to need this truth because you cannot... Love these kids and their families in your own strength. You can try. You might last, I don't know, for me, I might last like a half hour. Um, maybe you can go longer than I can. But you're going to need his strength. You're going to need his love to fill your heart to love these kids and to love their families. So remember this truth this week as we seek to serve. And remember it in all of our lives and all the things the Lord calls us to. We need to live in his love flowing into us in order to fulfill this commandment. So we are to love one, love each other, it says. And the question, of course, here is who is each other? It's important to know if we're to love, who is the object of this love? Who is the each other? Otherwise, if we just read this and think, yeah, I love this. This is good. Love each other. And we don't have any each other in mind. It's going to be theory. And love is more than a theory. Love is more than a good feeling about others. It's action. It's words. It's, it's material goods. It's being with somebody. It's praying for them. It's walking with them. It's all these things. And, and so we need to have a, a, an understanding of who the each other is. So we look here and it says to love each other. And then we can look later in our verse to see who is the each other. Verses 9 and 10. It says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. So Paul starts out by saying love each other. And then later on, picking up on the commandments, he says, this is your neighbor. That's the each other I'm talking about. And so then we must ask, well, who is my neighbor? Famous question asked of Jesus. Um, the parable is the Good Samaritan. You can read that. I'm not going to go into that today. But, but who is our neighbor? Well, neighbor uh, in English comes from two words, near and to be. 
So it's those that are near. It's those that are nearby. That's what neighbor is. It's that simple. Someone who's nearby. Well, what do you mean by nearby? Well, nearby, relationally, functionally, spatially. It's the people around you, you find in your life. And this is really uh, profoundly important, right? Because we can think, well, love means that I must go somewhere. And sure, it's great to go somewhere. And there are neighbors, people that we must love elsewhere. But, but you needn't go anywhere because you're already surrounded by neighbors. People who are nearby. Your family members, if you're married, your spouse, um, your, your church family, your workmates, your schoolmates, your literal neighbors in your neighborhood. These are your neighbors. And you are surrounded already by your mission field, really, as a believer. The people you're called to love are right there, providentially. If we understand God's providence correctly, that he is in control of everything, and he works all things for good, then we must understand our neighbors that way, that that neighbor is next door to me because God wants him to be my neighbor and wants me to love my neighbor. You don't have to look very far to see the people God calls you to love. They're right around you already. And this never-ending debt is paid to them, to love them. The book, The Art of Neighboring, um, discloses that in the author's interactions with well-meaning Christians, only 10% of them can name eight of their neighbors. And only 3% of them know anything beyond their names. That's just interacting with people around the country and, and their work. And so I encourage you to think about that and maybe do that exercise yourself um, now or later. Can you name eight of your neighbors? And can you name something about them? What they're going through, what their interests are, what their struggles are, what their needs are, what their gifts are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Who are they? I believe that we're called here in Scripture to love them at the, the level where we actually know their names, but not only know their names, but we're involved in their lives in some way. Now, I, I know that you can't control a lot of that. They might not want you involved, and you, know, you can only do so much. But I think many of our neighbors are glad to have a friendship of, at some level with us. And so loving our neighbors in practical ways and, and, and using hospitality and working, cooperating with them with needs that they might have, sharing a lawnmower or whatever it might be. There's just, you know, so many different ways to love our neighbors, to, to be involved in their lives. And, and by the way, in, in thinking about this, I'm aware that many of you do this really well. There are actually people who have come to Jesus and are now part of our church because you've loved your neighbors. You've loved those around you. You've reached out. You've built friendships. You cared for them. You walked through life with them. And you, and you shared Christ. And you invited them to hear or, or an alpha program. And they encountered Jesus. So thank you for how you do this. You, I think our church does this very well. So I'm not teaching this because we need, you know, strong correction. But I know we need encouragement. We need exhortation to love. And really the best outreach strategy we could ever employ is just simply this. Now all other things like the Alpha program are great. Uh, VBS is really important. God uses it to reach neighbors. But the very best strategy historically for the church is this principle, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor in a real way. Get to know them. Befriend them as far as you are able. Be involved in their lives. Pray for them and look to love them and share Christ with them. 
It's really the best evangelistic strategy we could ever employ. There are other good ones as well, but this is the very best. And I would love to just to see God stir us up and, and use us in this and to, and to open doors as we pray for him to open doors and as we take steps of obedience. And I would love to see actually the Alpha program, which we've run here, uh, be run in homes. And can you imagine this fall running 10 Alpha programs through homes, through your homes uh, in, in different places? And by the way, I think I can say this, if you want to do that, we as a church will pay for the food. Uh, if there's 10 of you, we'll have to figure out how to afford that. But we will somehow to come alongside to empower you to do this. The Alpha program, uh, we run it. And if you have questions, I can, I can talk to you. I can help. And I want to do all I can to help you in that. To come alongside you loving your neighbors and sharing the love and truth of Christ with them. And so this command here is a call of God to love our neighbors in these ways. It's a call of the gospel-transformed life, having encountered the love of God in our own lives in Christ and being propelled by the power of that good news and that reality to then turn as that waterfall to turn and love others in real ways. Now Paul goes on here to explain more about this never-ending debt. And he connects it to the law. So my second point, love and the law. Paul says in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting to notice that Paul goes from this command to love one another, oh, oh no one, right? Uh, anything except the debt to love one another. And then he goes to the commandments to, to explain himself. For the commandments, and he explains through the commandments. This is really important to understand. There's, there's some important theology going on. There's some important practical things going on here for us that I want us to note and benefit from. Paul could have said, we're to love one another, and just left it at that. Love each other. And then you just move on. And at times in scripture it does actually say that. It doesn't get into details. He could have said depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and your new life in Christ to love each other. And then not said anything beyond that. And certainly the, the Spirit of God is our power to love each other. To live in this new life. Some would actually say that this isn't sufficient in and of itself to simply say love each other and rely on the Holy Spirit. And that actually is how the New Testament believer is to live. And you're actually not, to, you're not supposed to say follow the commandments because that's the law. And we're free from the law. But that's not what Paul does here, is it? He actually uses the law. He gets into the law to define this thing of this never-ending debt of love, how to live it out. He is grounding his explanation of the command to love each other in the commandments themselves. Now, Paul certainly highlights the power of the Spirit. Paul has spent numerous chapters talking about the reality that none of us None of us can achieve the righteousness of God. We all fall short. And that the works of the law, if you think that you can somehow please God enough to either get in to his family or keep yourself in, you are terribly mistaken. You are actually insulting 
the righteousness and goodness and glory of Christ, thinking you can add something to his righteousness, thinking that somehow you can earn your way or earn enough to keep your way in him. It's very clear, right? I hope it's been very clear as we've gone through Romans that, that righteousness is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And there's no righteousness apart from Christ that will satisfy God in his perfection. That's been very clear, right? Yes? Good, thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> it's, it's there in the word, I think very clear. Hopefully we've made it clear to you. And so Paul's been saying this, but here now he's saying, love each other, just like it says in the law. He's bringing the law in. And so you need to wrestle with, well, how does Paul understand the law? And how are we supposed to relate to the law as believers? How does it function? He connects love to the law. And we've talked about this before. The law really is love in detail. That's what he's saying. The law is about loving God and loving one another. That's what the law is about. It's the details of that. And it comes from the heart of God. This is who God is. He is per perfect in his character. His perfect in how he regards others. He's perfect in his love in the Trinity. He's perfect in his love for his people. He loves all people. And God expresses his love and his ways through the law, calling his people to obey the law, to love each other. That's simply what he's saying. And thus, there are 613 commandments, commands in the Old Testament and over a thousand in the New Testament because you cannot separate knowing God from knowing his law because his law is simply the explanation of his character lived out among his people. And so the law endures because God is always this way. We call this the moral law because in the Old Testament, there are aspects of the covenant in the Old Testament, things that they were called to obey that were completed in Christ and no longer apply because we're not in that covenant. But the moral law of God, the things that, that apply and teach us about loving and living in Christ continues because they, those things come out of who God is. The law needs to be understood correctly, though. There are right and wrong ways to see the law. The law will never give you power to love. Never. The law will continue to point out your faults. The law by itself will condemn us. The law actually even stirs up our fallen nature. So if you're a human, you have a fallen nature. And if you're a believer, you, you have the spirit in you. You have new life in you, but you still have a fallen nature you're dragging along, so to speak. And the law actually will stir up that fallen nature if you rely on the law alone because it will just kind of poke it. You're not doing this and it makes it worse. Just tell somebody not to do something if you want them to do it, right? That's just the reality. Um, and so we need to understand the law properly in that way. We need to understand that God's gracious gift alone rescues us from our predicament of unrighteousness. God's grace alone covers our sins in Christ. God's grace alone empowers us to live a new life. God's grace alone continues to provide for our forgiveness and acceptance as we fall short, even as we are believers. We need to understand by grace alone, only are we safe and secure in the Lord apart from works. It's never been expected, actually. That we would try to fulfill the law apart from his grace. So stop 
doing it. Stop trying to do it in your own effort. Stop thinking you can somehow be successful on your own. We understand grace and the freedom of being forgiven and counted righteous in Christ alone. When we understand this and live in this, we will experience both the inclination and the ability to begin to obey the law, to begin to love God and others in real ways. We'll do it imperfectly. We'll do it imperfectly, but we will do it. And the law is meant to inform us on what that looks like. What does it look like to love others? And so the law is really important. The law is good for us in that it teaches us what it looks like to love. The law is given in different forms. We see in this passage uh, that there are negative commands, there are positive commands. So here we have negative commands from the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. These are all prohibitions against things that are the opposite of love. But the positive side, love, means that we not only do not commit adultery, but we are faithful to our spouses with our whole being. We give ourselves, we lay our lives down for our spouses. We love them at that level. We're called to not commit murder. Love would not commit murder. Instead, love gives its life for the other. Love works with all of its gifts to empower another, to make them thrive, and to experience that which is truly good in the Lord. Do not steal. You shall not steal. Love would not steal. Instead, love will use its own resources to provide for others, to bless others, to honor God. You shall not covet. Love would not covet. Love does not think, what can I get? I wish I had what that other one has. Love instead rejoices in that other's prosperity and is thankful for its own blessings. And so the Bible is full of these things, both through command and through example. Again and again, we're told and we're commanded, this is what love looks like. The examples are powerful. The most important example in Scripture of love is, of course, Jesus. He's the pinnacle of revelation in God's word. He's the one who's come to fulfill all righteousness. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus gave, Father gave through the son, the very most anyone could ever give beyond imagination. God paid an infinite price in handing over his son and his son taking on sin and the justice of God on the cross. He paid an infinite price in love. There's no greater love than this. He bore the holy wrath of God, the sins of the world. He humbled himself to serve us. There's no greater love except for the love of no greater love than the love of Christ. And we're called to receive that love from Him. Let that truth fill our hearts in the power of the Spirit. God wants to grant you power that you might know His love, to have your, His love poured out in your heart again and again and again, like that waterfall, to be filled with His love, to live in the reality of the love of Christ, and to know that you're also called to the same love. That you're called to love each other like Christ has loved us. 
I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 about this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the cruciform life. This is the life that's living in the love of, of Christ. This is the life that's looked at the commandment to love and has recognized I've fallen short. I'm, I'm condemned justly. I need forgiveness. I need a new life. I need fresh power. And this is the life that's turned away from self and sin and turned to Jesus. And in faith in Jesus, you are actually united with him in such a way that the old self dies the putting yourself at the center of all things or the center of anything dies and now Christ is the one in whom you live. So Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not about me anymore. It's no longer I who live. I'm not the center of the universe now. I am a glad worshiper of Jesus because he gave himself for me. Christ lives in me and now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What more could I want? What greater power is available? None. To live in him and his love alone. And now by that experience, I can begin to love others anew. That's what's going on. We're talking about the love and the law. That's how it functions. Paul continues... In verse 10, my final point, fulfilling the law. He actually starts this way, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he finishes this way, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He's using that word fulfilling the law, and he uses it elsewhere. In chapter 8 we saw it as well. This section is bookended by this idea of fulfilling the law. And I think we need to understand that as we relate to these things. This idea of fulfilling the law, the law's importance and how it functions in our lives. First, I think we need to recognize there's only one who's fulfilled the law. Truly, Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to fulfill the law. And the law must be fulfilled, by the way. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Do, do, you not, th uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law is not to be abandoned, but fulfilled. Christ alone fulfills it. We've all fallen short of the law. The law is good and right, but we've fallen short. Christ alone is the righteous one. He alone has fulfilled the law, always obeying it. And thus, he can go to the cross and be a perfect sacrifice in our place. And through faith in him, through connection in him, he pays for our unrighteousness fully because he's perfect and he's God in the flesh. And not only that, but his righteous life is there in our stead. It, it fulfills the requirements. We are required as humans to fulfill the law. We'll always fall short of that. But Christ has fulfilled it and he offers that perfect, really perfect, infinite righteousness as God and man in his obedience and faithfulness in our stead. And so he fulfills the law, and in him we 
are counted righteous. And in him we fulfill the law. Because he has fulfilled the law and we're in him. It gets fulfilled. So the question would be, of course, is that the end of fulfilling the law, right? Jesus did it. Jesus obeyed perfectly. He's the only one who ever will obey perfectly. And in him we are counted righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the, the wonderful exchange that goes on through the cross. So are we done with the law? Is there no more fulfilling to happen? It's an important question to ask and to answer. And the answer I'll give you is yes and no. We need to understand that we are indeed free. That Christ has fulfilled the law. That the law no longer hangs over us as requirement we must fulfill. Christ has done it. Christ took the test and he passed gloriously. And if you run away from your self-effort and your sin and turn to him, that A++++ infinity is your grade now. And so, yes, it's been fulfilled. Yes, you are free from the requirement of the law because he has fulfilled it and you belong to him. You are safe and secure. You are counted righteous in him. Actually, Paul in uh, chapter 5 says something that's controversial about this. He says in uh, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law came in, and the law actually uh, points out what's right, and it increases the trespass because it says that's wrong, and then we act uh, more rebelliously as a result. So the law comes, a good thing, it actually increases the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, the grace of Christ. The translation may be put, grace super abounded, super duper abounded. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, leading to eternal life through, our, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the wonder is that grace is so powerful that when there's sin and, and those sin might increase and those sin might be terrible, grace super duper abounds over it. It conquers it in your life and mine, in Christ. So we are indeed are free. We are forgiven. He has fulfilled all righteousness. But there's a little more to the story. And that's why I say yes and no. Paul addresses this. In chapter 6, following on after he makes this outrageous statement about the power of grace, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? So disobedience to the law. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Thank God. From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now Paul's connecting how we participate in fulfilling the law. How freedom and fulfillment function together. It says something related to this in Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Galatians 5. 
You were called to freedom, brothers. Only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Almost the exact same thing as what we're seeing in Romans today, right? And then he goes on shortly after that to speak of the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law because these things are the fulfillment of the law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so we are free in Christ. Indeed, He has fulfilled the law. We are forgiven. We don't need to fulfill the law to somehow attain to God. We are counted righteous and included in the family through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the good news. But because we are in Christ, because He is in us, and His life is in us, and the Spirit is in us, and because we died with Him on the cross to sin and are brought to new life in Jesus, now we fulfill the law and how we live and we love each other. I, I hope this makes sense. I know there's a lot of concepts here. And, and um, the best thing I want to do is just to point you back to the text, to reread it, reread it. It's, it's straightforward. But I want you to understand how the law functions in the believer's life. I want you to benefit from this. And so let me just give one example. I have a couple, but I'll just give one example. And maybe uh, this is a VBS example again. So it applies to more than VBS. But how does the law function for us practically? What does it look like? What does this passage look like? How do I interact with the law and in Christ fulfilling it in a, in a practical way? I would say that, that these things actually are, are the, the, the foundation and the means by which we become like Christ. And, and so I'll tell you the process ahead of time and then I'll illustrate it. It goes law, gospel, law. Law, gospel, law. Okay? So say tomorrow... You're at VBS, or you're somewhere, maybe you're at work, because this happens all over. And you encounter a parent and a child who are, come across as entitled. Do you know what I mean? Entitled. Um, they're at VBS or at your workplace, and they're acting as if they work, you work for them, right? And you owe them a level of satisfaction that they might get at a very expensive resort or hotel or whatever, and things are not good enough. Have you ever had that happen? No? Yes, I think everyone's nodding. Have you ever been that person? That's another question. Anyhow, um, so you're about to get, you know, as you're dealing with this and they're, they're, you see the entitlement and you're being the one pressed and they're like dissing you, right? Like, like you work for them and you're ready to let them have it, right? That's the point where you need the law and we need to remember today's message. I have a never-ending debt to this person. Oh boy, that changes this interaction quite a bit. And if we look back in chapter 12, right, too, it, it teaches us how to, how to interact with those that are in the church and those that are our enemies. And what are we supposed to do for our enemies? We're to love them, right? We're to even meet their needs. We're even to sacrifice for them, just as our Heavenly Father does, right? He is ever giving blessing to those who are His enemies. So the law must function first in calling us to a standard that, that is God's standard. It's his good standard. But it doesn't stop there. Don't stop there. Because when we start to think about it, we have the experience like you did last week, and maybe you're having it this week as well. It's like, 
ah, I just feel totally burdened. Pastor Paul just spent 40 minutes talking about loving my neighbor, and I just feel guilty right now. That's all. And I, I don't know if I want to come back because I don't want to feel guilty again. You're not meant to stay there. You're meant to run to Jesus, to the gospel, and to recognize that Christ has come and he has fulfilled the law. And, and often it's good to think about Christ has fulfilled the law in that particular aspect that you're struggling with. So the entitlement, right? How did Christ fulfill the law regarding how he related to entitled people? He loved them. He was patient with them. He corrected his disciples when they were in that way, but he, he, he loved them. He bore with them. He, he went to the cross, actually, for entitled people who thought they deserve things they don't deserve. And who deserve things more than anybody? Who actually has the right to be entitled? Jesus alone. And so he went to the cross for your entitled attitude that you've had at times when God, who is the only one who is good and the, the author of every good gift, if he kind of pulls back a gift, have you ever had an entitled attitude? Like, hey, that's mine. No, it isn't yours. And Christ went to the cross, sacrificing everything, all of his prerogative as God, in the, as God himself, sacrificing it, bearing your rebellion, your pride, your entitled Adam attitude on the cross and dying in your place. Paying for your sins, paying for your bad attitudes. Humbling himself under entitled people, really. Everybody. He humbled himself, lowered himself than everybody and subjected himself to, to torture and death for others and paid for our sins completely. So the gospel comes in, the law, we see the law, the gospel comes in and addresses it because Jesus obeyed and, and provided forgiveness for us and all who would come to him. And now he's been raised from the dead, he's alive and he's in us. And now he, he's, he's really in us and he grants us power in our reflection of the law and the gospel by the spirit to begin to realize, oh, wow, this changes how I think about this person. It doesn't change the person, actually, does it? But it changes how we think about that person. And so now we go back to the, the law. Law, gospel, law. And we remember today's message. I have a never-ending debt to love this person. Waterfall, flow through me right now. And help me love them. And you may need to address them, right? There might be a way, the, the thing to love them and the whole group might be that you need to address them if they're stirring up trouble. But your attitude is going to be totally different. You won't be angry. Hopefully, you won't be frustrated. You won't be indignant. How dare they treat me this way? As you remember Jesus, you'll be able to say, my Savior lowered himself from me with my attitude. I can do that a little bit for this person. And I can love them and, and I can even just do good to them and, without changing them. Again, wisdom might call us to do other things. But that's how these truths work. I have other examples. I'd love to talk to you about that and ways that it can help an anxious person, ways that it can help a person who's overwhelmed by circumstances. The, these truths are the biblical truths. And so I'd love to tell you more about that at some point um, and help you understand how to apply this. But I hope it makes sense. I hope you see. And I hope, even more importantly, you see the invitation now to this never-ending debt you can never pay. You'll never fulfill. But Christ has. And now he grants you power to love like he does. And he wants to use you. So maybe as we transition, 
um, just pray. Maybe there's one person you can pray for to love this way. Ask God to grant you help in light of his word, in light of the wonderful good news of Christ. And then uh, Pastor Toby will transition us to communion.